he is Greek-American. He's a New Yorker. It's a great American success story. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. He's got plenty of ideas on how to bring change. Enlist the support of business leaders, elected officials. Katz and Matitas rub shoulders with some of the most powerful people in the world. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now that's John Katz a native New Yorker. Mixing common sense thinking with New York sensibility. He's John Katz owner of 77 WABC. And this is the Cats Roundtable on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katz here Sunday morning. We have such a great show for you today. Some of our interviews had to be turned down or cropped down just to give you a flavor of them. And you can get the full interview on WABCRadio.com or on the mailings that you normally get. Garcel Clark, the DA from the Bronx. We have a special interview, David Patterson and Andrew Cuomo. It's only five or six minutes, but it's a full hour on WABCRadio.com. Steve Cates, what's going on in our skies? And let's start off with Michael Stoller on the real estate industry. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Report. This morning, I have the honor and pleasure of having Joel Marcus, the senior partner of Marcus and Pollock a law firm whose principal areas of concentration include real estate tax review and litigation, tax certiorari, commercial and residential tax exemptions and abatements, condemnation, tax planning, and other areas of municipal and state law. In addition, he is a mensch, and in addition, he's a real estate expert in, in the full sense of the word. Thanks for being with me this morning. Thank you, Michael. So tell me what's really going on. For the first time, I have to be pessimistic. But these are very scary times. Um, you know, we're in the property tax appeal business, and so we have access to real-time income expenses. We have uh, you know, vacancies. We have rent rolls. We have uh, lease abstracts. We know what the problems are of our clients. We speak to them regularly, and I have never seen a more scary time in real estate except maybe the 1990s um, when it was very bad. Um, we have 20% systemic vacancy in the office market, and that's looking like it's going to increase. And, and it's not that it's 20% and soon it will fill up. The demand is not there. So there's 20%. So any building that does better is taking some tenants away from another building. And there's a flight to quality. So some of your um, older office buildings, they're, they're suffering uh, at the expense of the high end. The high end the big tenants can pay the price. It's a, the, the high end, though, you're considering the new buildings and the the A buildings, correct? The new A buildings, A-plus-plus buildings like 425 uh, Park or Vanderbilt, one Vanderbilt, and some of the uh, Hudson Yards buildings, uh, they're getting it. And for them, their tenants, uh, the rent is not an issue. They make well, so much money. With regard to the Hudson Yards, what were the tax exemptions provided to owners? Well, there were different tranches of it, but in the beginning, uh, the first group that uh, went in had uh, paid only uh, 60% of taxes, and then it gets locked in and can't go up more than 3% a year. So it was a very good tax abatement. Of course, they took a risk. They had to build a platform. Who knows whether it would work. What's interesting is that uh, they did very well in the residential. They did uh, very well in the office. They thought they would hit a home run in the retail, but that has proved not to be uh, a successful story. 
They lost uh, Neiman Marcus as, a, as an anchor tenant. And there's a real question there because once you lose an anchor, there's a danger of losing the inline stores. So they're, have, they're scrambling now to see how they're going to reconfigure uh, the situation. Since we're at 800 Third uh, Avenue, what do you see on the Third Avenue corridor that was always a B-plus buildings or a B buildings? The largest availability of office spaces on the Third Avenue corridor, and it's out of it's out of uh, favor from a lot of companies. There used to be a lot of, of uh, law firms here. Uh, most of the buildings here are showing 20 to 30% vacancy. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on uh, office rents. And these buildings uh, don't have the amenity space uh, that some of the newer buildings have. So we, we're seeing that uh, some, some buildings are taking out um, office space and, and converting it to amenity space, lounges and things of that nature. Um, and uh, But the problem is, is we have hybrid work. Um, if you look at the castle system, which measures the number of people that go into the buildings, even a building that's got 75% uh, occupancy, only about 35-40% of the people uh, who should be there are actually going through turnstiles. So we have a lot of people working remotely. And what that means is that when le- the tenants are renewing their leases, they've opted to take uh, less space. Um, and so they're uh, shrinking. So what would you say today uh, would be the what a landlord would provide a tenant with with regard to everything and then also then put into the taxes? Well, let me tell you, taxes are probably going to be $18 a foot. Uh, running the building is going to be $20 a foot. Uh, you, got, you have uh, tenant, tenant work and concessions and leasing commissions and other uh, another $150, which amortizes to $15 a foot. I mean, if, if so, I'm at $53 before anything else is what you just said. That's right, and then so there's nothing there for a, a profit. Actually, there's nothing there for debt service, and that's a real problem. Many of these buildings have a debt level that's greater than their current market value, and if they want to roll it over uh, when it comes due, they're going to find that the uh, interest rates are double what they were a year ago. So this is a very scary uh, time, and I don't see the market coming to the rescue. There's not a lot of uh, uh, pent-up demand. What about the the subject of conversion of office buildings, you know, B, B minus and C and D to residential? We, ha- we had the 421G program a number of years ago, and they converted a lot of very, very old Class C old buildings. But many of the office buildings downtown are not... Or for that matter, anywhere in the city, are not well suited for conversions. Uh, part of the problem is that they're very dense uh, buildings. You know, we have zoning rules that require a window in every room, so you have deep space uh, that uh, doesn't suit well. And and the few conversions that we've seen, the historic W R Grace building has huge hallways and a lot of lost space. Uh, the the conversion that they did for, for two seventy Park, I mean two seventy. Um, Church Street, uh, 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 which was a New York State building. I've been in some of those apartments. You walk through a whole long hallway after you've entered the apartment just to get to the apartment because they have these torturous routes just so you can get to the windows. But these buildings don't uh, suit themselves very well. And even in very large uh, uh, office buildings, the, the central core, the elevators, etc., the, the fire stairs are in the center, so you can't even open up a courtyard. So these, we've, we've looked at a couple of these conversions. Plus, there is no program. We evaluated a proposed legislation. We did it at the request of the Real Estate Board of New York, and we looked at it, and they were going to offer a 50% uh, tax uh, 
abatement for a conversion, but they wanted 40, 50% uh, affordable uh, rental and, uh, and other aspects. And there was no promise that there would be significant tax relief other than the abatement, but the assessments were going to be very high based on the cost of conversion. So, Joe, I'm sorry that you were not positive, but you were realistic, and I appreciate that. And I like to thank you over there, Joe Marcus, senior partner of Marcus and Pollock. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Telling it like it is, giving you both sides of the story with common sense thinking. It's the Cats Roundtable. Well, let's get a report from New Jersey. With us today is Bob Hugan. He's chairman of the uh, New Jersey Republican State Committee. And uh, so many things are happening in New York, New Jersey. Uh, New York, the exodus is happening. Everybody's moving out of New York, going to uh, cities with more sun. What's going on in New Jersey, uh, Bob? Well, you know, John, it's sort of the same, the same thing. You know, people are sick and tired of the high taxes. And I want to talk about the education agenda that these progressive people are putting on our kids and our families is horrific. And what they're doing to the environment is terrible. So moving to, to Florida and places like that is such a smart thing for so many people to do. It's so sad because we've got great states. For example, New York City has the second best hockey team in the region. New Jersey Devils are clearly the best team in the region. But, but uh, and uh, just sorry, just kidding to the Ranger fans. But uh, no, I mean it, it's crazy the way they're driving people out of our states when these are great places. We don't want to leave. We want to stay here and fix it. And that's what we're committed to doing. No, I agree. In in, in New York City, New York State, four hundred eighty-four thousand people have left in the last twenty-four months, and the average salary of those people that left. Is one hundred and forty-eight thousand uh, dollars. You have any numbers for me for New Jersey? Well, I don't have the specific numbers, but it's it's we have lost so much income and work and and net worth, the value of what they leave, and what they leave with is not just their income tax. They leave with the job creation. They're the ones that are the philanthropists that support our hospitals and the things that we need to keep the lower end segments of socioeconomic elements really supported in addition to the government it's the, the consequences are so serious and the politicians the democratic politicians stick their head in the ground and say oh it's not really happening we're replacing them yeah we're replacing people with tens of millions of dollars of income with people who are making a reasonable living but nowhere near the same income tax and, and philanthropic or job creation it's a really a sad set of circumstances i'll tell you john what's even worse in new jersey we have a progressive administration here, the socialists, that are under the thumb of the teachers union, and they're driving policies that are so bad in terms of sex education to our kids. The kids in the second grade are not going to know whether they're coming or going. And then when it comes to the environment, these so-called progressives have sold their soul to foreign offshore wind people, and they're, they're foisting on us 
something that is an environmental disaster when these things have to be recycled, and it's going to raise the average utility bill for a low- and middle-income person by over $1,000 a year because this energy is so much more expensive than natural gas. It is crazy because uh, that's what started the whole thing. When when, uh, President Trump, uh, his term was over, and uh, President Biden took over, he, he... he made sure that everybody knew that that uh, oil was the enemy of the uh, of his administration, and the price of uh, crude oil went from fifty five dollars up to one hundred and twenty dollars, and that increased the price of gasoline. That increased the price of uh, of food. So what happened? The poor people in the middle class—they're the ones that got hurt. It's crazy. It's crazy. And you know what? What is Republicans have to realize. We have to have a plan. It's not just good enough to say these guys stink and they're doing a lousy job. They're, they're, they're screwing up our economy. They're embarrassing us internationally. They're ruining the, the environment. We have to have a plan that says, yes, we care about the environment as much as you do, but we have a plan that makes sense, one that is technologically and scientifically ready to be implemented. And until we have that transition time, we have to use the most environmentally sound fuel like natural gas. We have to modernize our technologies, and and, and it includes nuclear power, fusion, fission, all those things that could be part of the inventory, and we have to transition over a relatively long period of time because the science and technology is not ready for it, but we can't let people think that we're against advancing the science and doing things more environmentally sound, but we're doing it with common sense. We've got to let people know we have a plan. It's not just good enough to say no, and those guys are stupid we have a better plan we've got to tell people we actually have a plan for these things well are there any offices coming due this november in uh, in new jersey hey john this is a big year for us the the the, the last year that in 21 we had the entire senate and assembly up which was a normal cycle of things but the census wasn't ready so we used an old map in 2023 every single all 40 state Senate seats are up and all 80 assembly seats. So our entire wow. legislature is up. And we what, have a what's new a scoreboard, map. What's the scoreboard right now between common sense and non-common sense? Well, we, we're about five short in the Senate, and we got about eight short in the assembly. So we're, we have a chance to take the majority. It's a fair map, unlike the gerrymandering where we have 47% of the vote in the congressional election and got 25% of the seats. Here, Democrats and Republicans agreed on a new map that was fair. So we really have a fair map now. And so we have a good shot. It's going to be tough. You know, but we're, we're, we're underdogs a little bit here. But, but I'll tell you, it's going to be a great battle in November for us to take back, take back our state. Big statement here this year in New Jersey. And, and in New York City, uh, the entire city council is up. 51 seats. And, uh, I, and I've said that to a few other people that the 51 seats and some of them want to defund the police. And I said to the, uh, to the mayor, I said, those particularly city council people that want to defund the police, why don't you withdraw the police or reduce the police in their city council district and let the people in, in that district know that, well, they, your city council person wants to reduce it. Yeah, it, it's so ridiculous. When you think about what you want for your family, is a safe place to live. The kids can go to school without worried about being attacked or, or confronted by people and stolen things stolen from you. In New Jersey, we have incredible increase in carjackings, car th- thieves, 
cars being stolen, all kinds of things. The quality of life has been damaged because they don't stand up for the values of protecting the people who are honorable, good people. And, they, and, they're, and they're, they're making victims out of so many people, and it's screwing us all up. And we just got to stand up and say, hey, City Council of New York Assembly and Senate New Jersey, it's time for a ring going back to American values and the common sense economic and environmental policies. Understood. Uh, so uh, there's a so there's a big election for uh, uh, assembly and state senate and, uh, in in New Jersey and the one a big one in New York for city council. Listen, all we can do is let the people know. You know, WABC is uh, is very very big in New Jersey, very very big in New yeah. York. Whatever we can do, all we want is common sense, and we want people with common sense to get elected. No, I appreciate you what you do because part of the problem is the media narrative doesn't want to hear the truth. They just want to help Democrats, and it's really sad. So we don't have that many outlets, so that's why we have to go to friends and relatives and family and everybody say, listen, here's the facts. Here's, the, here's what they're doing to democracy. Here's what they're doing to the environment. Here's what they're doing to the economy. Here's what they're doing to education. Let's talk facts and common sense. And, we'll, and voters share our values. They just don't, they don't, they don't know a way of hearing it from us. So I appreciate what you and ABC do, WABC do to give us a chance to get the message out. Well, Bob Hugan, stay in touch with us. Tell us and, and tell you the common sense. There's got to be a few common sense Democrats. Can't you can't you tell them to stand up against the crazy ones? Well, you know, we have had some good flips here. The whole city council of East Hanover in Morris County, New Jersey, switched from Democrat to Republican. We've had uh, in South Jersey a number of switches. And people aren't going from Republican to Democrat. They're going from Democrat to Republican. And we've got to do a better job of letting them know there's a home for them. We welcome them. We want you to first vote for us, then register with us, and we will help support you. And, and we're working hard. We've, we finally started to reduce the deficit of registration differentials between Democrats and Republicans, and we're working hard to get the message out. And uh, we're going we're gonna to win in the end, but we want it to happen sooner than later. We don't want to take too long because the damage the Democrats are doing is so significant. Bob Hugan, uh, chairman of the uh, uh, GOP in New Jersey, Let's pray for New York. Let's pray for New Jersey. Let's pray for America. Let's bring common sense back to our country and our cities and our states. God bless you. Thanks, John. Thank you. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Here's the man who is New York, exploring the truth, telling both sides with common sense thinking. Here's John Katsimatidis on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is the Cats Roundtable. What is today is uh, Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he's with us every Sunday to let us know what the heck is going on out there somewhere out there. Uh, Steve, good to have you on a Sunday morning. It expands our mind a little bit uh, to 
to, to dream and to wonder. So where, do, where should we start? Well, good morning, John, to you and the listeners. Always exciting things. I have a little update here from the James Webb Telescope. And boy, John, that has really given us so much information about the universe. You know, in 10 years, we probably couldn't imagine that we'd have so much technology here with this massive telescope. But here's what we think is happening right now. One of the latest uh, revelations, I should call it, maybe not a discovery. The James Webb Telescope, John, just recently imaged a star that now they believe there's a planetary object, we call them exoplanets, around a particular particular star. Now, that's not great news or earth-shaking news or space-shaking news because we know there's so many exoplanets out there. But here we go. The James Webb Telescope has the first time in history it has directly imaged an exoplanet. In other words, it's actually seen the object because previous to this, the only way the astronomers could ever figure out if there was something around the star is they'd have to watch it if it transited in front and they never really saw it. They just saw a light dip and they gave an estimate of what the size would be through math. Well, this little object they've labeled GJ486b. It's around that star and it's 26 light years away from us, but it's weird, John. It's around a red dwarf star and now astronomers are thinking that if there are habitable planets planets out there. They may not necessarily be around stars like our sun, but these dying stars. And we find out that this little object probably is in the habitable zone. What did they detect? They detected water vapor, but the astronomers are having a little bit of confusion. They don't know if that water vapor is around the star or if it's directly around the planet. Now, if it's around the planet, well, there we go. The first evidence, really, of maybe a planetary object that might harbor, not I didn't say life, but has water. So that's interesting because the James Webb Telescope is so powerful. This is the first time they've actually imaged a planet around another star system without doing the theoretical stuff. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. I mean, um, there's so many things out there that I hope we can live long enough to find out what the heck is really going on. Yes, absolutely. And it's just so mind-boggling because, remember, 26 light years away, that means that what they saw happened in 1997 when we were all busy in our lives doing other things a long time ago. But what's interesting about this is that little object, the planet that they talk about, this GJ486b, it orbits around this star, like we go around once in 300 365 days around the sun. We know that. This goes around that star in 1.5 days, and they're saying that it's tidally locked. So in other words, its face stays the same to that star, but its temperature, they say, is around 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So for anybody out there that puts one and one together, you would say, wait a minute, how does water survive in 800 degrees? Because boiling points are like 212 Fahrenheit. But it's the first time we've had any indication of water vapor around a star. But I'm so keen on this James Webb telescope, right, John? I mean, it's got this amazing 21-foot series of, of mirrors, and it's really in, what, a year and a half, two years maybe coming up, done so much great science. I think we've only begun to, uh, to scratch the surface, and that, that's incredible. Now, I mean, we, we talk about Mars. We talk about the moon. Sure. I mean, uh, Venus and Merc Mercury so close to the sun, sure. uh, it, it must be 800 degrees there. It sure is. And here's another strange factoid about Mercury being the smallest planet in the solar system. The Ganymede moon of Jupiter is larger than Mercury. But, John, on one side, the temperatures can drop way below zero. And on the other side, it's, you know, bubbling hot. So the point is, we've never seen water on Mercury. Maybe Venus that planet that we talked about is the same thing. Maybe the other side of that planet is the same as Mercury. There you go. It could very well mimic those features because, like I said, since 
course, it's locked on. It's like if you take your hand, put it in front of your face and don't turn it and just move it around your head. One side's overly hot. The other side may be, who knows, semi-habitable. But that's what's so great about this. But what's also interesting, John, is this other conundrum, these great mysteries that we talk about. We talk about a subject in physics called absolute zero. What the heck is that? We've talked about it a long time ago. It's the lowest temperature that you can have in the universe where all molecular and atomic motion stops. What is it? 459.7 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Now, here's this nebula that they found called the boomerang nebula. It looks like a shape of a boomerang or a bow tie. It's 5,000 light years away. So the astronomers, with their ways of measuring things, you know, through the spectroscope and all these other fancy math formulas, they find out that this is the coldest place in the universe. What's the temperature? Minus 458 below zero Fahrenheit, which is like one degree away from the all-time low temperature. So that's incredible because scientists are saying that if we can get to absolute zero or get to the lower temperatures, this is going to change the subject slightly, but it's going to help us in the world of what we call quantum computing. Because when you get down to those super low temperatures, conductivity and things move in a different direction. So maybe the concept of trying to you know, get to absolute zero is something technologically that in the future you'll have computers that can uh, outpace the wildest imagination that you and I could have. Totally mind-boggling. And we have some great, finally, we have some great interviews coming up on the Dr. Sky experience at WABCRadio.com. And one of them, John, is very interesting. I'm proud of this. I had an interview years ago with Dr. Kip Thorne out of California Institute of Technology. He's a co-Nobel Prize winner on something called gravitational waves, which is the warping of space-time. He's a real amazing man. I've met him. But if people go there, you'll find, what, a plethora of interviews on all these subjects that we talk about. And thanking you for letting me open up people's minds on Sundays as we talk about these great topics. Dr. Steve Tates, thank you so much. And Dr. Sky, you're a normal, you're not a doctor, Steve Tates, but you're a Dr. Sky. Thank you so much, and God bless you, and thank you for enlightening us and, and expanding our mind. Well, thank you, John, for the opportunity, and a happy Sunday to your listeners. Happy Sunday. We're privileged to have the district attorney of Bronx County on the show with us today. I'm Judge Richard Warnberg. I'm speaking to district attorney of the Bronx, Darcel Clark. Herself a very distinguished uh, judge with a wonderful, wonderful resume. Judge uh, Clark served in high levels in the Bronx District Attorney's Office, went on to the Criminal Court, the State Supreme Court, where we were colleagues, then she went on to the Appellate Division. She decided to run for District Attorney, and she's been District Attorney since 2015. Uh, judge Clark, welcome to uh, Katz and Cosby. We're happy to have you, you here. Thank you so much, Judge. It's an honor to be here. Well, let me ask you this question. And I know this because uh, Judge Dick Brown, who is also on the Appellate Division, who left the Appellate Division to become the Queen's DA, he also left the bench to become DA. And I always wondered about that because the usual career path is for someone to go from the prosecutor's office or from the law practice onto the bench. Why did you make that change? Because I wanted to continue to serve the public. I have been in public service my entire legal career, and I wanted to do something that would have the most impact on the lives of the people that I served in the community. And there's no position that's more impactful, especially in this time, than being the district attorney of Bronx County. I am a daughter of the Bronx, raised here in this county my entire life. I have served, as you said, as an assistant DA, as a judge, now as a district attorney, and I wanted to be the one to make the difference. 
Um, we are facing some challenging times now, and I want to do the job where I can make the public safe. I want to stand up for victims, those who cannot stand up for themselves, and I'm unapologetic about doing the work on behalf of victims of crime and in protecting our community in particular, but also doing it in a fair way and making sure that defendants have the, have um, their rights um, protected as well. So this is my home, and I'm going to continue to do all that I can to make the Bronx safe. When I look into the faces of the people in the Bronx, I see myself because I am one of them. And I bring all my lived experience to this job every day, all day, 24-7, I'm doing this job. And it is a challenge right now for prosecutors. Well, I agree with you, Judge Clark. And I have to say, the big threat to the survival of the city of New York and to the state of New York is this climate of lawlessness that's come out. But I myself happen to believe that there's a bigger picture for, for prosecutors. You have to deal with the, with the mentally ill. You have to deal with the drug addicted. And I know from uh, your background that your leadership in uh, intelligent common sense reforms to deal with people's problems through uh, diversion programs and to be helpful. And you're not looking to throw everybody in jail. You're just trying to balance the need to give public safety versus trying to help people who are otherwise victims of society's uh, problems. Is that correct? That's correct, Judge Orenberg, and you know that better than everybody for your distinguished service on the bench and all that you did in those very same areas, talking about dealing with the root causes of crime. Look, I'm not unrealistic about this. We can have public safety and justice and fairness at the same time. So that means standing up for victims, holding people accountable for bringing the harm that they're causing in our communities. I'm not afraid to do that. I do that every day. I did that as a assistant DA. I did that as a judge. And now as a district attorney, we are working day and night on these homicides. We just had a number of convictions this week to make sure that people that harm people, that kill people, our children, our elderly, our citizens are held accountable and they have to pay for those things. People that 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 hurt people, people that are bringing guns, the gun violence is the biggest problem that we have now. So I'm not afraid to prosecute people and make sure I hold them accountable. But at the same time, I use my position to deal with the root causes of crime. Why are people coming into the criminal justice system in the first place? And as you know, we have to deal with those things. People that have mental health issues, people that are drug addiction, addicted, poverty, all of these things lends itself into people coming into the criminal justice system. So we had to create diversions as well. So to keep them from continuing to offend, we can treat them for the drug addiction that may be causing them to do it, for the, the mental illness. So we can also give second chances. But the bottom line is that in the Bronx, we need more resources. That is going to be the solution. The safest communities don't have the most police. They're the ones that have the most resources. And that's what I need in the Bronx. So I'll hold people accountable for what they're doing, but I'm also going to stand and use my voice to make sure we get what we need in the Bronx. I'm tired of being first in everything bad and last in everything good. Well, I think the important balance, uh, Judge Clark, that, that you represent is uh, the district attorney and uh, with your distinguished career as a judge as well. You understand that there are certain people that have to be apprehended, prosecuted, convicted and put in jail for the public safety 
of the larger public. But you also understand that some people who may get caught up in the criminal justice system who really are not violent criminals who are a threat to the public safety, but rather people have mental health issues or, or addiction. And that's why you and I both believe that diversion programs in the appropriate context, not just let everybody out, but in the appropriate context is the right thing to do. Absolutely. And we have to be pragmatic about this because I cannot arrest my way out of the problems that we're dealing with in the Bronx. It has, it's a multi-pronged solution. District attorneys now have to do prevention, going into the schools. Like I said, the youth is one of the biggest problems that we have now, that they don't have enough to do, that they're turning to violence. We need to get to them early to let them know that they have alternatives to violence. Not alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to violence. So before they pick up a gun, I want them to pick up a book. So we have to let them know that they're valued and loved and do all we can to prevent the crimes that are happening. Then we DAs have to do intervention. Those who do enter the system, what does accountability look like for them? Whether it's diversion or whether it's jail and everything in between, we have to make sure that we intervene so that even if they make a mistake or commit a crime, that they don't do it again. Then, of course, the biggest piece is the prosecution. And again, I will not apologize for being the district attorney of the Bronx. I believe that people have to be prosecuted and they are people that belong in jail and prisons. And I'm working hard for the, against those most violent people that are doing it. It's not the low level nonviolent crime. You know, as a former colleague of mine, we don't do that. We don't do it that way anymore. Nail them and jail them is not the way anymore. Those who are causing the most harm are the ones that we concentrate on. Those few, if we can handle those few and get them off the streets, then the communities will be better and we can deal with the other problems that we have. So prosecution, a big part. I'm unapologetic about being the DA. And lastly, there's the reentry. Even those who have served their time, when they come out, they have to come back to where they came from. And if that means coming back to the Bronx, I want to make sure that they have the resources they need so they don't reoffend. Because I don't want to have to prosecute them again. But if they don't have the resources or have a chance to become productive citizens, then they're going to come back in the system and we'll have to do it again. So the DA is prevention, intervention, prosecution, and reentry. That's the balance that we need. That's the balance that I do each and every day. And I have the best staff in the world. I have some of the most dedicated public servants you can ask for. They come in here day in and day out working under tremendous, um, you know, conditions, you know, with the changes in the law, the discovery. It's so much work that they have to do. And listen, I was on record for some of the reforms. Some of it went too far, but I have to deal with the laws that are there. You know, as a former judge, all we can do is follow the laws that are there. And that's what I'm doing. But my staff works under tremendous conditions, but they do it every day on behalf of the people of the Bronx. And I could not be prouder of the work that they do every day. Well, well, Judge Clark, I want to commend you for your work as district attorney of Bronx County. I want to commend you for your great service on the bench. The people of the Bronx are truly lucky to have you in that leadership position. And I'm very proud to have said that you and I were colleagues on the state Supreme Court. I wish every good wish. And I hope uh, you do well in the years to come in your public service. Thank you very Thank much you. for being on the show. Thank you so much, Judge. I appreciate you as well. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Exploring the truth, telling both sides with common sense thinking. Here's John Katsimatidis on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is the Cats Roundtable. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Governor Patterson, we're now getting a little bit older. Let me ask you this. When you look at what's going on nationwide, these are crazy times. Uh, And it looks like we're headed for a Biden-Trump rematch. When you look at the national scene, what do you make of all of this? I want to go back to your chicken and the egg uh, dilemma. I think that the social discord in this country uh, has arisen from the political discord. I think you're onto something there, Gov. So let's stay with that for a second. Uh, it almost seems like the the performance level across the board has dropped. Yes, the sense of duty, the sense of responsibility, but almost the degree of professionalism has dropped. Uh, it's not taken as seriously. Uh, there's not as much discipline about it. And I think part of it is there is less scrutiny by the press. I think the press has diminished almost across the board. It's more partisan. Yes, we always had the New York Post, which was clearly partisan, but now it's right across the board. It's Fox TV, it's electronic, it's the print. Uh, and the reporters don't have the time or the information to go as deep. You know, everything's about Twitter and everything is is fast. So I don't think the the press is holding government as accountable on the substance, which is allowing government uh, to decline. Does that make any sense to you? To amplify what you said, Governor, in today's New York Post, there's an article written by somebody named Quinn who had the audacity to write about the bail reform package that was passed in 2019, and here it is 2023, and they are now uh, talking about the crime increase since bail reform passed. Well, bail reform passed in December of 2019 two and a half months before the pandemic, which caused crime to, uh, to, sp- to, sp- to, to spiral all over the country, all over the country. And all of this is an issue about bail reform. And, and by the way, bail reform has some degree of an effect on the rate of crime, but the real problem with crime right now is far more complicated. It's a bunch of young people who are out doing nothing for a year and a half during the pandemic. It's uh, people who've moved out of New York State, for instance, and the tax rolls are getting smaller and smaller. They said at one point 7,000 people were paying half the taxes in uh, New York State. It's, It's probably much less than that now. And I think that um, the media itself 
has just goes for the quick headline. Yes, theoretically, uh, the crime rate is up since 2019, but a whole lot of things that happened in uh, 2019 that we could blame it on. But the real uh, uh, blame lies in uh, what was uh, an unpredicted event, and that was the pandemic. People are asking today, what happened this year? How did the budget get late? And how did the governor get denied, uh, basically, her essential priorities? How do you think it happened? I think that the problem, uh, Governor, in, in this situation is that uh, Governor Hochul has, for some reason, not exercised those powers. And, you know, I don't think uh, that it's that she doesn't want to. I don't I just don't think that she recognizes that she could change the dynamic that exists right now between her and the legislature where they actually in public say, oh, we get along great. And everyone knows that's not true. So why bother with that? Why not just go right to the heart of the matter and start using those executive powers that have been sustained by uh, 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 by courts? in their rulings and use it to your advantage because even under the constitution the state is first depending on you to lead the legislatures work with you but the governor is the one that should be leading this and it 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 might be just my misunderstanding or yours but it just doesn't appear that that's happening we've always had a far left wing right that's that's nothing new uh, there's always been a far left wing, different names, different acronyms over the years, uh, the re- far reformers. And sometimes they've been constructive. Sometimes they have been uh, destructive. Today, you have the so-called progressives. First of all, I don't even know what that means, because progressive is not a new word, right? It goes back to Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, your father called himself a progressive. My father called himself a progressive. So, but they call themselves progressives. Uh, I don't know what they stand for. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, do you think they are a constructive force? Do you think they're accomplishing anything productive for the party? The problem with the progressive movement today is it only focuses on a kind of utopian idea that will share all money among amongst all the people. Everyone will get the same thing. Um, uh, we'll, we'll give money to causes even when the state doesn't have it. And we will change the world. It's almost like you're, you're watching uh, some movie like The Wizard of Oz or something like that. And I don't feel the substance I don't feel the the uh, research that goes into the positions that many of them take, and I don't feel the um, uh, the, the uh, character being demonstrated that the people who were fighting as we did when we were younger for causes that we believed in and causes that even our adversaries realized were right. 
Governor Patterson, it was so much fun to be with you uh, and and uh, your recollections and your insights are so profound. I want to thank you. I also enjoy listening to you on WABC radio. Uh, God bless John Katsimatidis, who owns WABC. I want you to know that I feel for you because it's always like you versus 57 conservatives on that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Governor, uh, it, it was a pleasure to do this with you. And uh, I told you we made history. We're the first governors to interview each other. So here's to you, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Governor. My regards to Mary. What is today is John Solomon. And he's got some breaking news for us. John Solomon. What the heck is going on? I mean, uh, things have been going up and down the last day or two. Tell us. Yes, there is a lot going on. Uh, today, a lot of reaction to a story we broke on Just the News last night. There is an email now public for the world to see between the two former CIA directors, Mike Morrell, the man who organized the letter of 51 intel experts who falsely told us that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, and John Brennan, the man who succeeded him as CIA director under Barack Obama. And what the email shows is clearly uh, that this was not a letter done for intelligence or security purposes. It was done, in the words of Mike Morrell, to John Brennan to create a talking point for Joe Biden at the final presidential campaign of 2020 to push back on the Hunter Biden laptop and try to pretend that it was disinformation. This email, we rare to see two CIA directors email themselves, uh, but to it now makes clear that what we were all told in the fall of 2020, this was an organic concern by intelligence professionals. In fact, it was a campaign-driven uh, effort to create a talking point to help Joe Biden beat Donald Trump and to falsely insinuate that the laptop was Russian disinformation when there was no such information in the marketplace. Uh, John, uh, these two CIA people, are they professional CIA people or are they just political appointees? Let's be Mike Morrell was American a 33-year career person. That's very important to point out. 33-year career person. 33-year career guy. He rose to deputy, sec uh, deputy CIA director, which is a career position. And twice, he w was the acting director when a, when a, a CIA director. So he twice ran the agency as a career person. One of the few people ever to have that distinction in the CIA's career. John Brennan was a career intelligence officer who eventually became a political appointee as the CIA director for Barack Obama. So both men derived their credentials, their trust with the American people when they signed this letter by being career intelligence professionals, and they took those bona fides that we as the American taxpayer gave them, and they turned it against us and had us believe them that this was a Russian disinformation campaign when all they really were trying to do, according to this email, was create a talking point to help Joe Biden uh, undercut the Hunter Biden laptop. They very so real they lied. They lied to the American people. That's exactly. I'll just give you, as I said, there's been a lot of reaction since the story came out. This is the one that most caught my attention. The former intelligence chief for the FBI, another career official. He worked for Bob Mueller, one of the most respected retirees of the FBI. A lot of work. He said, listen, this wasn't just a talking point. It was a, quote, premeditated and admitted lie. These guys knew they were lying. They were trying to influence the election as former spies, and they harmed the American people in so doing. They changed the, the, the uh, way history goes. I mean, it was used by President Biden, or that time Vice President Biden, on the uh, stage uh, uh, of the debate, and the American people believed them. You're exactly right, and that's exactly what happened. They, they took that trust that they earned as career professionals, and they weaponized it for politics, and they 
deprived us from making a fully informed decision about Joe Biden. People today wonder, well, how did we end up with Joe Biden, all this Hunter Biden stuff? Because we weren't allowed to have the debate in October of 2020 when this laptop came out and provided us much of the evidence that we're now talking about three years later. The FBI files, the conversation you had on the FBI files, uh, John. Yeah, there's a, a another part of this that I think is so important, which is this letter not only is used by Joe Biden at the uh, debate to blunt it, this notion that this was Russian disinformation then is used by the FBI and big tech to censor anyone who dare write, talk or mention this on social media. So this letter had ripples effects. And, and you see this in the Twitter files and the FBI files, what we're learning now, uh, that this was situation of something that uh, had weeks of censorship impact on Americans going into one of the consequential presidential elections in recent history. So the FBI, big tech, News media, fact checkers all grabbed the work of John Brennan, Mike Morrell, and these 51 intelligence experts and used it to further the censorship effort. Again, harming America from having a good debate. Wow. And, and, and well, it goes beyond that. At, at what point, at what point do you say uh, they have crossed the line of lying to the American people? At what point do you say uh, the word treason? Yeah, those are those are debates for a political and a legal question. I'm not the expert on that, but I will tell you that so many career intelligence officials, people who didn't sign the letter, either they were approached and didn't sign or weren't approached and glad they weren't, they're all saying, listen, the intelligence community is a lot worse off now that we know this. This is something that's a black eye. I understand the station chief of the CIA refused to sign the letter of Moscow. Yeah, that's, ex- yeah, that's right. Uh, Dan Hoffman the premier Russian intelligence expert in our country. He was the Moscow CIA Moscow station chief uh, at one of the most critical times in U.S.-Russian relations. And they approached him, and he wouldn't sign it. When you ask him why he wouldn't sign it, it's very simple. He says, because there was no proof. I'm not going to sign my something and say I'm an intelligence expert when I don't have the intelligence to back it up. So there are many good people in the career uh, ranks of the uh, intelligence community still today, people who had the courage not to sign it, didn't bend to the peer pressure, and they would prefer that intelligence experts only write letters when they've got the evidence to back up what they're saying. Well, John Solomon, have a great weekend, and this is Friday afternoon, and uh, we'll see where it takes us. I pray for America. Thank you, sir. It's a great honor to be on your show. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.